let's stand up, let's worship, let's go. All right, guys, we're gonna start with a new kick on an old classic. So when y'all catch on, sing along with Ari. to sing Christmas songs with y'all, but we came here to worship together. So we're going to sing one. If you've been around, you may know it, and we invite you to sing along with us. I was walking the wayside, lost on a lonely road. 
Guys, being children of love means that we get to see God do incredible things in our life. And this season, the Christmas season, marks the beginning of the story of the most incredible thing that anyone has ever done for anybody. This story of love, and we're going to sing about exactly what that means. So we invite you guys 
to join along.
sing this with us. Praise the one who came down here to raise our lives up, up from death and danger and destruction to hope and joy and life forever. Well, hi, and welcome to Passion Community Church. I'm Mark Tapscott, your online campus pastor, and I'm so glad that you're here. Now, PCC is one church in multiple locations throughout Central Virginia. We're in a nearby prison, and we have a significant online community as well. As you may have experienced, we have great live music at our campuses, and we all get to see the same teaching from a member of our teaching team. In a few minutes, you'll hear from our senior pastor, Brian Hughes, as he continues our Christmas series called Home. Now, we will also be taking communion together in our service today, so take a minute and get some bread or juice, or bread and juice, or whatever you have, and have it nearby so that when we do that, you'll be ready to join in that with us. Now, if you're new with us, then we're especially thankful to spend an hour with you today. If you haven't yet, then please take a minute and submit a welcome card. We want to welcome you and make ourselves available to answer any questions that you may have. So just click on the link in the chat or visit our website and send in your welcome card today. It's just hard to believe that Christmas is just days away. And we're so excited to celebrate with our annual Christmas Eve service. It's the service of the year around here when we become one church in one physical location and online around the world. And we have four services on the 24th, plus two services at an earlier date. You can find all the info on our website. So if you, if you plan to attend the service in person at the Powhatan campus, then please reserve your free tickets on the website so that we can be prepared to host you and your family and all the friends that you're going to invite to come with you. Now, of course, if you plan to attend with us online, then no ticket is required. Now, that's a lot of information, but the next day is Christmas Day, and we're going to be online only on Christmas Day. And we know it's a busy day for everybody. The kids are going crazy, opening gifts and running around the house. Relatives are visiting. You have places to go and things to do. But we all know why we celebrate Christmas, right? It's the birth of Jesus. So we want to be able to 
we want you to be able to just pause for just a minute at a time that works for you and celebrate the birth of Jesus with us. So on Christmas Day, we will still have our normal service times online. So if you plan to attend uh, at a time that you would normally attend on Sunday, then those times are still available to you. However, we also recognize that you might be a little bit busy during those hours. So you can go to our website at pccwire.net and you can click on a link to watch the service on demand anytime you like on Christmas Day. Now I hope you will take time to join us as we celebrate the birth of our Savior who came to our home so we could be with him in his home forever. And then the very next Sunday, it's New Year's Day. That's right, it's the first day of 2023. And we'll be back to our regular schedule at all of our campuses for that day. Now, we have a special service on that Sunday. Our elementary age kids will be in the room with us for an abbreviated family-friendly worship experience. So gather the kids around as you watch online, and they can be part of that too. Then on January 8th, we'll kick off a new series about finding a better way to live. So bring a friend on January the 8th. Everybody gets a free t-shirt that day. You don't want to miss out on that. Now, a few weeks ago, when a family in our area gathered for Thanksgiving, they went around the table and everyone said what they were thankful for. Now, I remember I did that at our table too. Maybe you've done that before. But this young man said that he was thankful for new friendships. You see, he got involved in a small group at our church with people in a similar life stage. Let's be honest. Making and maintaining friendships as adults with our jobs and families, it's, it's hard, right? But we all need safe people in places where we can get real about how we're really doing as people and how we're really doing in our relationship with God. And this young man, he found just that right here. So on behalf of him and everyone else here who is ending 2022 with new friendships, thank you. Thank you for giving here and creating spaces for people to connect with each other and in ways that help us all connect with God. Now you can be part of that giving. You can be part of that by giving safely and securely on our website right now. Or you can just click on the link in the chat. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the story from this young man that he's thankful for all the friendships that he's found when he connected to his small group. And God, we are, are so glad that we can give here and be part of that and partner with you as you do amazing things right in front of us. And so we thank you for the gifts that are being made today, and we thank you for how you will use them to just keep, uh, keep people uh, connected and focused on you. So thank you for that story that we heard today from him, and we thank you that we have a place that we can call home that we know is PCC. And we thank you for that today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, we're going to join our live room back, uh, rejoin the service that's already in progress. We'll see you in there. Stories of a Savior Holiness with human hands A treasure for a traitor No ear at her Of the Father until heaven came. 
rescue like no other. Come on, sing to him.
Let him hear it. That's right. You are worthy. We believe it. You are worthy of your name, Jesus. God, we do celebrate that together today, that you are worthy of the name that we proclaim. That at the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're grateful to be gathered here today to celebrate your name because at the end of it, God, your name, your voice is the only one that matters. So help us hear from you today. And we thank you for your presence here with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. You can have a seat. I'm so glad that you uh, decided to come to church today. I'm always reminded of all the things that you could be doing because we get to freely choose how to use our time, and you decided to invest it here. That's an honor uh, to God. It's certainly an honor to us. So thank you for being in church. Today we're in the series called Home. Home. It's kind of a unique concept. Home is more than where you lay your head at night, because we sometimes do that in different places, right? In hotels and in guest rooms and sometimes in a camper or a tent, or as Pastor Elijah talked about last week, sometimes we lay our head in a plane as it moves along at 300 knots or whatever. And comfortable as those places might be or not, they're not home. As familiar as uh, my dad's house is, he bought that house when I was two years old. I grew up in it. As familiar as it is to me, even that's not home to me anymore. And as luxurious as it is to stay in some really bougie place on a special occasion, well, that's not home either, is it? I find it ironic and a little bit interesting that uh, there's a phrase that we have in our, in our culture that was actually coined by a Roman commander that lived at the same time Jesus did, a guy named Pliny the Elder. And he coined this phrase that we've come to know, home, Pliny said, is where your heart is. Even though he lived at the same time of Jesus, uh, by the way, that phrase is not in the Bible. But the gist of it, uh, it certainly is. Home is where your heart is. A couple of thousand years later, Pliny the Elder had a, uh, a sort of a protege, even though she probably had never heard of him. But she nevertheless, she offered this very simple, very memorable, very repeatable phrase that became, I think, the most iconic phrase on this subject. Her name was Dorothy, and she said it best, I think. So come on, you know this, there's no place like home. Well, Dorothy is actually a good segue into our subject today because, because if you know her story, Dorothy left home. Uh, she didn't think she liked home. She dreamed of a better home somewhere out there over the rainbow, but as she journeyed, she learned, well, she learned that there's no place like home. Not to stretch the thing too far, but her fantasy story is really not all unlike the one that we're going to look at today. And what we're going to see today is what I would consider to be the most powerful, the most important story in the entire Bible. And I know that seems like a bold statement or like an exaggeration, but it's not. Well, not to me, anyway, because what we're going to unpack today is a story that uh, I find to be incredibly 
important and central to my life. It's a story I've told many times, I've taught on many times, and maybe you've heard it before. But to grasp this story is to grasp the entire story of Jesus himself. And its central truth is about home. It's about being home, and then leaving home, and then returning home again. Now, the first part of the story is something that everybody here has in common, whether you know it or not. The second part of the story, though, is only ours if we choose it. So, let's begin. It begins like this. There was a man who had two sons. These are Jesus' words, by the way, told to us by his apostle, his friend, disciple, Luke. And this is a story that you might think you know, one of the most familiar in all the Bible. But for many of us today, there is a surprise coming in the story So try to see it with fresh eyes or hear it like you've never heard it before. There is a man who had two sons. How many of you have siblings? You can raise your hand on this uh, at every campus. How many of you grew up with a brother or sister or have a brother or sister somewhere? Yeah, so the way that, that Jesus sets this story up, any story that begins this way already has us, those of us who have siblings, involved. Because anybody who grew up with a brother or sister, they know what's coming, right? A comparison is coming. There was a man who had two sons. Isn't it one of the great life mysteries unsolved in our world today how two or more children can grow up in the same exact home, under the same exact conditions, in the same exact culture, with the same parents, in the same time frame, the same values, and end up anything but the same? I have three brothers, but there's just one I I really grew up with, my brother Jeremy. He's three and a half years younger than me, and we, even though we're close in age, we are different in almost every other way. I was the skinny, non-athletic in any way kid, and I loved people, and I loved books, and I loved school, and I pretty much could carry on a conversation with anybody from the time that I could talk. And importantly, I believed that rules were meant to be followed. My brother Jeremy was the total opposite. He was solid muscle from the second he was born. He was naturally athletic, and the only thing he hated more than school was rules. So when Jesus opens up this story and says there was a man who had two sons, I can't help but think about me and my brother. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to see that a comparison is on the horizon just by the way that Jesus opens the thing up. And I have an an expectation, right? I've got an expectation. I expect that one brother is going to be one way, and if I could be so bold, I expect that one brother is going to be good and the other not so much. But a surprise really is coming. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, which was substantial. It used to be his dad's. Now it belongs to him. And he set off for a distant country and there squandered this wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So At first glance, when we first read this story, and for some people this is so familiar that we just blow past it, we don't catch it. But at first glance, it's super easy to miss how lethal this moment is. It is the climax of this son's rebellion, and it is the worst kind of family meltdown. Whatever family meltdown you've had, this one rivals it. Father, give me my share of the estate was unusual, but it wasn't unheard of, and yet, when, it, when this kind of thing happened back in that day, 
the key to it was the father might divide his estate while he was alive, but he had a life right to it. So nobody carried anything off until he was gone. In this case, the son takes the assets that his father divides and gives to him. He liquidates them. It's like he's saying to his father, when he says, Father, divide our, your estate, give me my portion of the estate, what he's saying is, I just can't wait for you to die. Imagine that. Let that hang for a second, because that's really what he means. He's in essence saying to his father, I disown you, and I disown how you raised me, and I disown what you believe in, and I disown what you taught me, and I disown my place as your very son. It's a total disrespect for all that his father stands for. Imagine the magnitude, the weight of this moment. It's a flagrant rejection of the father's household and his values and his care for his son and his work and his life and his love, all of it. So you're as good as dead to me, he says to his dad. And the son then takes his newly granted riches and he walks away from his brokenhearted father and he heads to the distant country. Henry Nouwen, a really amazing writer who I would commend to your reading, he says that the distant country is the world in which everything considered holy at home is disregarded. And I want to ask you this question. I asked you earlier to raise your hand if you had a brother or sister. Don't raise your hand to this question. Who can see yourself in the younger son? Because many people can. And many people think this kind of departure is permanent. This kind of family wound that the son creates is irreparable. And how can a son or a daughter who does this to their father ever come home? And if you think that, a surprise is coming. Only after the younger son reaches a place of you know, complete deprivation, he spends all that stuff, and then he starts to have some level of regret. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Remember, he becomes in need. He's hungry. And so he gets, he gets a job, and the guy sends him to his field to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. I want to pause him uh, here for just a second. Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. And in context, for a Jewish person, the most unclean of unclean animals is the pig. So this story has layered meanings this is the worst. No Jewish per, a Jewish person would more starve to death than to do what this younger son is contemplating. He longed just to eat the food that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. So he comes to his senses and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. This is what I'll do. I will go, I will set out, I will go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That's what he put in his head. And so then he gets up and he goes back to his father. But while he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I think this is an amazing part of the story. Do you remember their last interaction? But the father sets all that aside. He runs to him. He kissed him. The son said to him exactly what he had planned to say because he'd been rehearsing this on the whole journey. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father stops the conversation. The son can't get the rest of it out. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And this is the story that many of us here today have heard before. The son treats his own father with disrespect. He runs away to a distant land. He blows a fortune with disdain and he comes home in disgrace. The return of the prodigal son. That's what we call this parable, right? It's a phrase that's a part of our culture. It's pervasive inside and outside of the church. As popular as there's no place like home is the homecoming, the return of the prodigal. Maybe you were, maybe you still are the son or the daughter that finds your identity, your story here with the younger son. The rebellion and regret, maybe they're defining characteristics for your life. Maybe you've been to the distant land where all that you know is true and right is set aside. Maybe that's where you are right now. And if that's you, we're going to come back. Really, hang on. Because it's not the end of the story yet. Remember how Jesus opens this story, right? There was a man who had two sons. We've only heard about one of them. Jesus isn't finished. Meanwhile, after the younger son comes back, the older son is in the field. And when he comes near the house, he hears the music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he said. And your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. And so the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The older son, he doesn't know what's happened. I mean, his, his, he doesn't know that his brother's come back. He's out working in the fields. Of course he is. That's what he does. He's the dedicated employee. He has a strong work ethic. He's been the protector of his father's entire estate and his good name. And so he finishes his labor for the day, like he does every day, and he heads home, and when he gets close, he hears all the music and sees all the dancing, and it's obvious that there's a party going on that he's not a part of, by the way. And interestingly, he doesn't go into the house and find out what's going on, what all the fuss is about. Instead, he calls a servant, and he asks him for a report. And the servant explains what happened, and it infuriates this guy. I mean, he is way past his boiling point. But he doesn't barge in and tell his brother what he thinks of him. And he doesn't barge in 
and tell his father what he thinks about what his father's done. He doesn't go back to work. He doesn't go to his room and turn in for the day so he can calm down a little. He just sort of stands there, staring in the house, arms crossed, anger on his, uh, his face, and he's pouting in this moment where he's kind of passive-aggressive and hoping his dad comes out and asks him what's wrong. It's really what he wants. You ever done that? You ever prepared your speech in your anger, hoping to get the chance to deliver it, hoping somebody asks you so you can shoot your anger towards your target? The son, this older son, he prepares this speech that he hopes to give to his father, but he never goes in. He stands outside. And he's hoping his dad comes out and asks him, hey, what's wrong? And he's ready for that. What's wrong? What's wrong? Oh, I'll tell you what's wrong. I've worked my entire life for you. I've worked my butt off for you. He probably didn't think of it that way. I worked my butt off for you. I've slaved for you. I put in long, hard days for you. I protected your assets and your wealth and your name, and I added to your wealth. And how do you reward me? In all these years, you've never even thrown a party for me and my friends with cold pizza. But that guy, this son of yours, takes half of your worth and flushes it down the toilet on despicable acts that you taught us not to do. He spit in your face, taking your money and spending it on things that you taught us were detestable. And then he comes home broke and marred by this unspeakable sin. And what do you do? You restore him to the family. You throw a party and kill the fattened calf for him. All that's in the older son's mind. And can you hear what he's saying? Can you feel what he's feeling? He is mad. Of course he's mad. Because what happened seems like it's unfair to him. And we get that, right? Nobody likes unfairness. When I was growing up, I mentioned earlier I liked school. And I was a pretty good student. So, you know, I'd come home with an A- minus on a report card, and I'd get interrogated as to, you know, why I didn't work harder to get an A+. My brother Jeremy would bring home straight Ds. We'd put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and kill the fattened calf. <laughs> Nobody appreciates it when something unfair happens, right? But there's something deeper than that going on here. It, it, it's a... Uh, it's not just a sense of unfairness that the elder brother has. It's a, he's jealous, he's resentful, he's bitter. And I think all of that, I think underneath of all of that is that he's insecure. And his insecurity has morphed into an expression of self-righteousness. I think that happens a lot. I think it's ironic that we try to hide our insecurity by acts of self-righteousness that actually make us look like we're quite secure. We work hard. We play by the rules. We do the right thing. But sometimes our motive, not always, but sometimes our motive in all of that, all those actions, is really our own sense of insecurity that we might get left out or that somebody might get loved more. And so we set ourselves up to look better on the outside. That's what the older brother has been doing. He looked good on the outside. He looked good with his actions. But in reality, he was just as lost 
as this son who openly rebelled. He left the father too, just like his brother did. Except he did it without ever walking away. The insecurity that he has was sort of revealed in the conclusion that he feels like his father's love has to be earned. Which is what motivates his hard work and his obedience. He doesn't do those things out of his love for his father. But because he thinks he has to, it's obligation. Ironically, for the older son, work and obedience, believe it or not, were also a form of rebellion. A way of leaving the essence and the goodness and the pure love of his father. Once again, Henry now in quoting him, he says that it's more difficult for the older son to face his own lostness than it is for the younger son. It makes sense, right? When we're mired in open sin, sexual sin or addiction or whatever uh, that's sort of out there, we're far from the father because we've created a physical distance. We've run away. Well, it's eventually, it's eventually easy to see in those moments. Like it's not hard to see it. But the older son, he leaves the father without ever actually walking away. And I think I can say that because he marginalized his brother and basically asked his dad to choose between them. He basically says, it's him or me. If he's in the party, I'm outside. If he's in this family, I'm not. If he gets grace, I don't want it. In fact, look at the distancing language that the older brother uses. He says to his dad, this son of yours, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes. Not my brother, but this son of yours. When he says that, he basically reveals his own insecurity. He's basically saying, for years I've been trying to earn your love. I've been trying to set myself up as deserving of your love. I've been trying to show you that I'm more worthy of your love. So I want you to compare the two of us, and I want you to declare that I am the righteous son. Deep inside of his soul, He's so unsure of his father's unconditional love for him that he's determined to earn it, to prove that he's worthy of it. And in in this way, the relationship becomes contractual. It's an exchange. It's a quid pro quo. Some of us do this not only by displaying our good behavior and making sure everybody can see all the good things that we do, but by highlighting other people's poor choices so that, in comparison, we can look better than they do. We look at those who struggle with drugs or alcohol or addiction or bad behavior or destructive decisions, and we sort of push them aside. And we look at people who've made really poor choices with their lives, sometimes maybe even crime, and we say, you know what? You don't deserve to come home, even though the Father's been searching for them too. We stand in the way of their return because of our own insecurity that leads to self-righteousness. I played by the rules, but you strayed. You don't deserve to come home. Nobody ever says that. We never say that. We just sort of act like it. I'm better because I look better, because my actions look better. We do this with kids, too. We look at certain kids, we label them as bad kids, we compare them to our good kids, and we push them aside, and then we never allow them to be a part of our lives so that our kids and our families 
can be a positive influence on them so that we can share with them the love that they so desperately need, the love that can only be found in Jesus. Even though the Father's been searching for them too, we stand in their way and don't let them return home because of our insecurity that leads to self-righteousness. Let's face it, the younger son now, he's the one behaving like the heir, even though he doesn't deserve it. He lived like the devil, now he's living like the king. And so we look at that, those of us who are older brothers, and we draw a line and we say, if the father's just going to let anybody into this party, then count me out. And we stand outside, kind of looking in. That's insecurity. It's insecurity because what we're doing is we're betting on being more righteous. But deep down inside, we know we're not. And I'm, I'm just going to say something that is really going to wreck somebody, and I don't mean to. I'm trying to help you in all seriousness. Here it is. You're just as screwed up. You're just as messed up. You're just as broken as the rest of us. And you also left home, just like the younger son. But you're in, you're in denial about it. And I know, because I am the older brother. So if this is convicting for you, I really do get it. And maybe that's the surprise of the story. Because there are two sons, and both of them left home. But the real surprise is that this story that Jesus tells, it really isn't about the sons at all. This is where most people, this is what most people don't catch about this parable. Check out the way that Jesus begins it again. There was a man who had two sons. Now, if you're, uh, I'm looking for all the grammar English people at every one of our campuses. You can, you can sit up tall and proud. This is your moment, okay? I wasn't much of a grammar person in school, but but for all of you who were, who just love, love sentence structure and subject verb agreement and all that stuff, this is your moment. Who, there was a man who had two sons, who is the subject of this sentence? The man. The man is. The father. This story isn't about the younger son. And it isn't about the older son. It is about the father. And the word prodigal, it was culture. Prodigal's not found in this scripture. We, somewhere along the way, we assigned this story a label. We called it the prodigal son. Do you know what the word prodigal means? It means lavish. And, and we've assigned it that way. Somebody somewhere said, well, this is about the son's lavish living. But if I'm really going to define this story well, we're going to call it the prodigal father. And we're going to talk about his lavish love that he has for both of his boys. And his, his desire that they would both come home. One son squandered the father's goodness on blatantly sinful things. And every day, the father stood on the, e the edge of the field and watched and waited for him to come home. But the other son squandered his father's goodness on an internal battle, a comparison of good works and the father leaves the party to come outside and say to him, everything I have belongs to you too. See, it doesn't matter how far we've strayed from home. Whether you, like the younger son, have participated in some open sin that nobody would deny, least of all you, or 
Maybe like the older son, you left the father by becoming resentful and self-righteous and insecure. Regardless of how you identify in this story, we can all admit that we have all left home and we can all accept the father's love and come to the party. And when we accept the father's love through Jesus Christ, who God sent to get us, then God looks at us through all of the junk and through all of the sin, public and private, through everything that we've done. And what he sees is the son, the daughter that he's always dreamed about. One who's standing with him inside the party. One who rejoices honestly when another lost brother or sister comes home. And so God looks at you no matter how ugly you think it is on the inside, he peers into your heart and he says, you're beautiful. You're the child I always wanted. I don't care what it looks like on the outside. What matters is that you were dead, but now you're alive. You were lost, but now you're found. The surprise, this parable isn't about the bad son And it isn't about the son in hiding. It's about a father who is waiting, searching, hoping that every one of his kids comes home. Oh, come, all you. I hope we never hear a Christmas song the same way again. The words, Christ is born for you, should forevermore translate in your mind to this phrase, you can come home. That's what it means that Jesus came. He came to get you, but you have to go with him. So no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, or how far you've gone, or how long you've been away, there is never, never, never a moment 
when the father is not standing on the edge of the field waiting and watching for you to come home. This prodigal story from Luke 15, it's a parable. Jesus told it, a parable, a fictitious story intended to reveal a spiritual truth. And I believe that the spiritual truth here is the entirety of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which takes us to a moment that we're about to share together. Coming home, truly coming home, means accepting the truth of who Jesus is and what he did to make a way for us all for you to come home. Jesus, God himself, made the sacrifice he didn't have to make for the sole purpose of you being able to come home. And that's why we do this thing that we sometimes call communion. We share together the blessing of home because Jesus allowed his body to be broken, because Jesus allowed his blood to be shed. All of that, all of that, the whole story of it, wrapped up in these words. There was a man who had two sons. going to ask for your help here if uh, you guys will just take a seat for a moment and at the ends of your rows um, on one end or the other there's a bag and they have communion cups in them if you will just take a moment while while Lindsay plays and if you're joining us online um, earlier your campus pastor Mark told you to gather some bread and some juice um, for this moment right here that we're about to share together There was a man who had two sons. Right now, let's get real about leaving home and coming home again because all of us have done it. We've done the former, but all of us can do the latter too. We can come home. On the night before Jesus was crucified at a special meal with his followers, he held up a normal piece of bread. And on one side of your cup or there at home, you can take the bread now. And he held the bread up and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it and remember me, the body of Christ given to all of you.
And in the same way, after the meal, he held up the cup. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Whenever you drink it, remember me. The blood of Christ given for you. And from that day until this one, our symbol was solid. More than a cross, more than an empty tomb, the bread and the cup represent the massively powerful truth that we have all left home. We can come home, all of us. So I'm gonna pray, and after I pray, let's celebrate together. And if you're here in the room and you're taking a step towards Christ today, just think about these moments as we continue to sing. But I'm gonna pray for us now. God, thank you for this moment. Thank you for the time that we've shared here together. God, thank you for the gift that we get to sit at your table and receive your body and blood and know that we are home. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for making a place for us. We're grateful in the name of Jesus. Amen. Coming home, truly coming home. Coming home. Truly coming home means accepting the truth of who Jesus is and what he did to make a way for us to come home. Now, if you did that today, if you accepted that truth and you've come home, then I celebrate that with you. And if you'd like to share that with me after the service, I'll be right here. You can ask for a direct chat with me and we can talk privately about your decision. Or if you prefer, you can drop me a note to my email later this week. But either way, I'd love to know about your decision, and I would be honored to celebrate that with you. Now, we also have a guide called Choosing to Believe that you can find on our website. So check that out for some ways that you can connect with God this week and fully enjoy being home. And don't miss our Christmas Eve services later this week. We'll see you there, and have a Merry Christmas.